Chapter 16. Durant and Company. Jonah Unger stumbled along, surrounded by companions, but completely alone. He spoke Polish and German fluently, but the soft and melodic French and the simple and strange English were alien to him. He stayed close to Wolfgang Strothman, whose English was apparently excellent, so that he would not be lost if communication was required. But they had not spoken to each other much before the world fell to pieces last night, and they were not exactly chewing the fat now. The American, James Cox, was behind Unger, and he seemed to think that the best way to communicate was to flash a broad smile whenever they made eye contact, which Unger found odd, but he supposed it could be worse. The younger black man, with a scar across his face, still looked at him as if he wanted to kill him and let the big black African cut off his head. So when James Cox smiled at him, Jonah accepted it, half-heartedly smiling back. Jonah was settled in for the march. He'd spent three years pounding the cobblestones and dirt roads of Germany, Belgium and France on the ugly mind and body turned to mush route marches in full battle kit that travelled them from the front lines to the rear and back again. So as tortuous as this march was, it was also old hat. The trick was to shut down the mind and carry your weight slightly forward. That way, your feet automatically reached ahead to catch you from falling. Each step became instinctive self-preservation instead of a feat of mental discipline and iron will. Jonah felt movement to his right. He glanced up and saw that James had come even with him. James flashed his smile at Jonah. How you hanging in? Jonah shrugged. Express kind English. James smiled. No English, I figured. James reached into his pocket and pulled out a half-empty pack of Wrigley's spearmint gum. He offered a stick to Unga. It's gum. Chewing gum. You chew it. James broadly mimed how best to do that. Chewing gum was not new to Jonah Unger. He accepted the stick of gum, unwrapped it, and began to chew. It was pretty delicious. That's right, you got the hang of it. Good, yeah? Jonah smiled back at him. Yeah, good. James grinned. Yeah, good. That means, yep, good, right? Jonah nodded, and the two boys walked on quietly for a time. James caught his attention with a little wave. I'm James, by the way. He pointed to himself. James. Jonah pointed to himself. Jonah. Jonah? Like the fellow who got swallowed by the whale? The flurry of English after Jonah was a mishmash of sounds. But Jonah smiled anyway. It seemed that the smiling American had the gist of it. Well, Jonah and the whale, nice to meet you. Even circumstances as they are. Jonah saw a cloud pass over James's face. When the American spoke again, there was a sober certainty to it. I think I heard that lady say this morning that this is all just a nightmare. I think she's right. I don't think none of this can actually really be real. I never dreamed nothing as bad as what happened up in that church. I can't think that in real life anything that terrible could happen on holy ground. I'm, I think I'm going to wake up in that field with the rest of them French fellows hung over from that rum. And then I'm going to get up and get on with life from there. That's what I think. 
Jonah did not understand but a word or two, but he nodded along. He was mildly grateful when he glanced up and saw that Strothman had stopped long enough for them to catch up to him. Ruhig, bitte. Quiet, please, you too. James was a little taken aback, but he'd always been one to take heed of his elders, even if they were Germans, even German prisoners in a dream at that. And the pair continued marching in silence for a while, which Jonah found more comfortable than the broken conversation. The boy James might be somewhat cloying, but Jonah no longer felt alone, and he was grateful for that, and for the chewing gum, which had lost its flavor but was now serving as an oral metronome, matching time with his exhausted steps. Gerard, Grigori's sabre strapped to his waist, led the way. It was awkward walking with it constantly banging against his hip, but seeing as how little effect his pistol had on the things chasing them, he found the discomfort oddly comforting. As soon as they cleared Talmar proper, he chose to lead them cross-country. It seemed the most practical way to evade pursuit. Durant had been a hunter all his life. From the time he could hold a rifle, his father, Nathaniel Durant, guided David and his elder brother Matthew into the wilderness north of Vancouver, teaching them to hunt. Nathaniel taught his sons that the smartest prey was the prey that you never saw. The dumbest was the beast that believed itself invulnerable. Grizzly and moose never thought to run or hide. And why would they? Nothing they encountered in the wild had ever given them pause. The big beasts were easy to track, and when you found them, they almost always fell where they stood. Even mountain lions, once treed by the hounds, were as simple to harvest as shooting fish in a barrel. The wolf, though, was something else entirely. They knew men and dogs, and the horrors of the bow and arrow, spear and gunpowder they carried with them. Ever since the line had split from their fawning canine brethren, the wolf had held fast to its fear and antipathy toward humankind. When they caught the scent of man, they melted into the shadows of the deep timber. To be seen was to be killed and butchered up, never to run with the pack again. So they made themselves, if not invisible, more invisible than their brothers and sisters of the forest, thus buying the best chance they could of being overlooked by hunters who were more apt to bag what was easy to target than what was taxing to find. Durant was mulling it over in his mind as they marched. If they were being hunted, as instinct told him they were, it suggested that the hunters would take prey wherever they found it, just as his father would have. And so at each turn, he led his pack further into the wilderness. Durant's father, Nathaniel, ran his hunting outfit out of hope British Columbia. For 15 years, he took well-to-do clients adventuring into the rainforests of the North Country. From Mahattle Creek to Garibaldi, from Hell's Gate to Kamloops, there was not a more famous tracker. A week in his care meant you would bag moose and grizzly, black bear and mountain lion, prized bighorn sheep and mountain goats. Their heads and corpses now adorned parlors and living rooms, lodges and studies, from New York City to Toronto to Washington, D.C. and even Dallas, Texas, staring down at their killers, reminding them of their certain and enduring domination of the planet. Nathaniel was always gracious to his guests. After all, they paid top dollar for the privilege of killing. But secretly, he hated them. 
He had never lost a client to the wild, but he knew someday it would happen. A fat railroad heir taking a bad fall. Perhaps a drunk Texas cattle baron shooting himself while cleaning his brand new rifle. And on that day, Nathaniel would not mind. Even if the business took a temporary hit, it would be quantified to the multitude that this was a real man's adventure. For these coddled scions of wealth, the chance to pretend they were embracing actual danger would compel them to hire Durant and company. Your first choice for the thrill of big game hunting and taxidermy in the north. So the sign on Nathaniel Durant's place of business plainly stated. Durant was abruptly yanked out of his memory. He found himself leading his companions toward a small clearing in the woods that held an odd sight. He stopped short, a hunter's instincts kicking in. He held up his hand, halting Renoir and the others behind him. Caitlin's head was buzzing and her legs ached. The heels on her Adelaide boots were not made for distance or terrain, and she felt where her heels were rubbing themselves raw. She was ready to lie down and die. But the part of her that had soldiered through everything that life put in her way to this point was fierce and stubborn. Its voice screamed in her ears to keep going, for now it was loud enough to silence the other voices in her head. Caitlin stumbled over an exposed root, and Isaiah grabbed her by the elbow, saving her from sprawling. Thank you, she heard her dry, cracked voice say. Yes, miss. You want some water? He offered his canteen. Caitlin accepted it gratefully and had a drink. This is beginning to be a habit. You're sharing your water with me. Isaiah smiled. Rye, my pleasure. She passed him back his canteen, and they continued on. He saw a grimace as she walked. Them shoes ain't made for walking. Caitlin nodded. No flies on you. Isaiah chuckled. Not yet, anyway. Ahead of them, Strothman and Unger came to a stop and lowered themselves. Isaiah put a finger to his lips and led Caitlin to kneel. What's going on? Caitlin whispered. Isaiah tried to peer through the trees to see why stealth had been called for, but could not see beyond Durant. Can't really say. The lieutenant stopped. We'd best keep quiet, though. At the head of the line, Durant was circumspect as he looked over the path before them. It was chock full of some two dozen men and women. They lay slumbering in a small open meadow. Kilted Highlander riflemen, a few German infantrymen, and a handful of French poilus. Amongst the combatants were civilians, too. Several Frenchmen, obviously decades too old to fight. Someone's grandmother, a pair of young women and at least four school-aged children, boys and girls. Durant and Renoir studied the group, trying to take their measure before going any further. There was no movement. If they had been savvy enough to set a picket to stand watch, the man had succumbed to the temptation to sleep. Renoir whispered to Durant, What shall we do? Durant gritted his teeth. The last thing he wanted right now was to get shot accidentally by some nervous half-asleep sentry hidden in the woods across the meadow. That would never do. Stay here. Durant quietly removed his pack and drew his pistol. Renoir and the others hunkered down and watched while Durant moved ahead. He paused at the edge of the meadow. Hello. No reply. The long grass in the meadow waved in the morning breeze. Durant called out a little louder to the highland guard nearest him. Hello. 
nothing. Durant summoned his courage, then cautiously made his way out into the clearing. He approached the Highlander, who had pillowed himself on his pack, face down. Durant checked to see that the man was not sleeping with a pistol or knife in his hands. Seeing nothing that would give him a sudden gutting, he touched the man's shoulder. Hello. The man was stiff and cold. Durant rolled him over onto his back. Death had him. His throat was ripped out, as if by hands, and his lower belly was a mass of dried blood. Durant stood and stumbled back. He looked over the rest of the group. There was no rhythmic breath, no gentle rise and fall of their chests and bellies. They were all good and dead. Renoir and the others made their way out to take in the scene. Strothman and Isaiah looked over the pair of dead Germans. Their skin was pale white, the blood stains from their wounds dark brown and crusted over. These have been dead for more than half a day, said Strothman. You got that right for show, said Isaiah. He had made the same calculation, and his mind was still running with it. The younger German was seventeen at the most, and slight in stature. Isaiah knelt and began unlacing the man's small, hobnailed boots. Halstead examined the dead civilians. He saw that they had all died of blunt force and worse. He eased down the neckline on one of the young women's dresses. Christ. Renoir was close by. What have you found? Fucking teeth marks, mate. Fucking teeth marks. As Isaiah pulled off the dead German's boots, he spoke up. I say we need to get on up out of here. Renoir glanced at him. Isaiah was not one for fear. Whatever killed them is gone, Renoir said. Isaiah stood. He handed the boots to Caitlin. Here you go, miss. Try these on for size. Might not fit perfect, but I'll loan you my extra pair of socks. They'll beat the hell out of them high heel boots for walking. She took them. Thank you. As Isaiah pulled off his ruck and dug into it for his spare socks, he glanced over at Renoir. You seen what I'm seeing? He tossed the socks to Caitlin. There you go, miss. Renoir and Durant followed his gaze to the bodies. Durant spoke first. What do you see? Only blood in this here field is dried up on them bodies. These folks ain't get killed here. Isaiah finished reshuffling his pack and shouldered it. Matter of fact, I don't think these folks is dead. I think they're sleeping. And I'd like to get the fuck on up out of here before they wake the fuck back up. Durant looked at the dead, all killed by violent physical trauma. But Isaiah was right. There were no pools of blood in the meadow, no sign of conflict in the pristine field. Each body lay in what looked like comfortable slumber. A chill ran through the group, and they involuntarily began to step away from the bodies. Renoir spoke what they were all feeling. We, oui. Let us move on. Durant took his pack from Renoir and holstered the pistol. He was reluctant to draw conclusions Yet there was no disputing Isaiah's assertion. Like the wolves that knew to run from Nathaniel Durant, the instinctive impulse to race out of the meadow and never look back poked insistently at each of them. Though they did not run, their heartbeats quickened, and once they navigated beyond the dead bodies, they melted into the woods on the far side of the field. Fresh fear, giving their legs the strength to move at an insistent pace.